I think there have been probably more movies made about Christmas than any other subject or idea or topic that I can think of, except maybe for the Star Wars franchise. Uh, Christmas is just a big deal with not just those of us who are followers of Jesus, but with everybody. And there's a lot of quotes. You know, there's like the old school Christmas movies. I still like It's a Wonderful Life, and I know several lines from that, and you probably do too, or A Christmas Story. Um, But one of the more recent ones several years ago, um, there's a movie Elf which just totally silly movie and maybe you you either love it or you hate it there's very few people that are like yeah i don't care you know it's like it's 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 it kind of brings that out but there's this quote in the line and it's said a couple of times it's said um by the elf whose name is buddy and then it's said by his to be girlfriend and it says this the best way to spread christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear uh it's almost biblical and it's you know i'm sure i can tell some of you just like wow there's christmas for me um the best way to enjoy christmas really is to share christmas uh i have said several times i guess in in this context you know that i know christmases without jesus and remember the parties and some of the celebrations and things and then Christmas after that. I remember, I actually remember my very first Christmas after Christ and just the difference and the depth of it and uh, beginning to think, whoa, I really get this and I treated it kind of lightly and use that as a springboard, as an opportunity to be able to talk about Jesus. Folks, listen, most of your friends and your family and co-workers and, and classmates our hearts are a little more open, a little more vulnerable during Christmas. It's a perfect time. It's a perfect opportunity um, for you to be able to bring up Jesus and to talk about it because that's, that's what it's really um, all about. So we need to share. We, we, I hope you want to share with others the real reason behind Christmas uh, so that they can know God's love for them. And it's not just, you know, digging in in any kind of way, being self-righteous. You know, if the clerk, uh, the cashier, your server says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, and you get really mad about it, you go, Merry Christmas, I think you missed the point. You know, I don't don't think that's going to communicate really what we want to say and what we do. So here's the big idea about today's message. Christmas cheer is best uh, when it's, it's shared with other people. And by other people, I mean not just those of us in the room or with other believers. And I know it's, it's, if there's ever a holiday that's our holiday, um, there's two, you know, Christmas and Easter, those really are ours, you know, and that's, and that's okay. There are other holidays that kind of originated from different places, but it's okay for you to own this and for you to embrace this and even talk about it. So here's how we're going to apply this. You ready? When we leave again in just a few minutes, uh, what are we going to do with what we hear? Is it another Christmas message? Uh, You've heard a lot of Christmas messages. I have preached a lot of Christmas messages. But what are we going to do with that? Let's do this. We can share the good news of what Christmas is about with those who don't know Jesus yet. Those who don't know. I had friends who did talk to me about Christ and invited me to church, 
invited me to Christmas programs. You know, during this time of year, there's uh, all kind of special events, especially musical kind of events. And they would invite me to come. And it was real. It was non-threatening. It was kind of easy. And I was more apt to go during Christmas because it's sort of part of the season. You know, it's, it just fit in. So I'm just encouraging you to think about that and don't let this opportunity slip by. You know, even Mary and Joseph shared their joy of Jesus' birth um, with shepherds, you know, who came to, to visit him. And these shepherds knew where the baby was because the angel had already told them about this and announced this. This is all in the context. You know, last week we looked at John chapter 1 because John's approach at the gospel and talking about Jesus is so totally different than everybody else's. You know, John just comes in from, I said it was kind of a 70s feel to me. You know, it's like his new version. Um, his gospel was written several years after the others were already out there. And I think, this, I'm projecting this on him. This is like preacher talk. You know, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they had done the traditional, okay, here's, you know, in the beginning. And, you know, and they just talk about Jesus and kind of, you know, give the backstory, And then they present that. John was like, nah, everybody's done that. I'm going to do something different. And so he did. He just launched that. Now, if there is a classic way to tell the Christmas story, I heard this story before I ever actually read it in Scripture. I think because of a Charlie Brown Christmas, because when I was a kid, that was the cartoon that we watched. I know you probably, it was in color. It was, it was pretty, fairly modern. Uh, but uh, I heard, I think it was Linus that quotes Luke chapter 2. That's the most familiar story. Most of you, um, if you think about Christmas, that's the reference uh, that you think about. So this is drawn from there. And in verse 10, uh, it says this. The, the angels say, good news that will cause great joy for all people. There's a lot packed in there. You know, real Christmas cheer is about Jesus coming as the Savior of the world. Now, he did it in such an unexpected, total, totally unforeseen way. No, nobody predicted like, you know what I think? I think it's going to be like this. Everybody missed, missed this. I know that um, during this time of year when I'm, I'm up here and I'm saying, hey, why don't you use Christmas to focus on Christ, you know, and to talk about that and kind of bring that up. Uh, and, and you think, wow, that's because it's not typical. As, as ironic as that is, I think it's really not. We're so focused on so many other things at Christmas that it kind of gets swept away. Now, when I was preparing this, I was a little hesitant about this part because I think that sounds like such a cliche that we leave Christ out of Christmas and, you know, we, we, we kind of make a big deal out of that. I had somebody send me this, a note this week and say, an ex didn't come to save us. Christ came to save us. Keep Christ in Christmas. I think, well, I kind of get what you're saying, but don't be mad about it, you know. And actually, that X is a Greek symbol, which stands for Christ. But um, most people don't get that. But it's bigger. It's deeper than that. It's a, it's a chance to communicate. But our attention is at least typically on other stuff, particularly buying gifts. You know, buying things and receiving things. And what do you want for Christmas? And I do that. You know, I ask kids, so what, what do you want for Christmas this year? What are you going to get? And... Uh, you know, you get all these different kind of answers, and we think about that. Here's something I wanted you to know, because I thought this was crazy. According to a 2015 article, 
uh, 77% of shoppers in that 1915 holiday season uh, bought an average of $126 in gifts for themselves. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone out Christmas shopping? You've gone to the mall or you go to the outlets or a store and you think, wait a minute, I kind of like that myself, you know, and you buy that. And I saw some gifts last night kind of spread out and I thought, wow, I like, is that for me? Because can I go ahead and have it? Well, first of all, it's not for you. And no, you can't have it, you know. And, but we think about that, you know, we think about it. And, and I bet you've done that. You've gone out and you're shopping for other people or, or online, whether it's Black Friday or Cyber Monday. Or in, and you're thinking, wait a minute. I'm just going to slip that in my cart because I, I would kind of enjoy that. Well, we do that. But here's another stat for you that this, this kind of blew me away. Do you know that less than 1% of everything that you purchase uh, in, in the consumer marketplace will even be used six months after it was purchased. Six months after you open, you know, you tear all those gifts open and they open them and they look at it and they go, oh, you still don't know what I like, you know, or, or it was, this was perfect and I've been wanting this. And, you know, um, six months later, it's like, where is that? I don't know. I think it's hanging in my closet or it's at the bottom of the toy box. I, I don't know. Six months after it was, it was bought. Think about that as you plan for Christmas this year. Um, I felt defeated. I just felt like, seriously? You know, it's like now my credit card bills are going to be huge in January and all of this and they're not even going to use it. But less than 1% of all the stuff that you buy will even be used in six months. Now, that may seem like an over-the-top statistic. It was, it, you know, it, it is to me. But the question is worth asking, okay? Do we treat God's grace the same way that we treat, you know, uh, uh, the, the countless items that we buy? It's these countless things that we've got. And I know we probably represent, even just in this room, uh, different, you know, economic positions and places, and maybe your Christmas gift's going to be, you know, like those com commercials where the guy has bought his wife, you know, he's bought a, an SUV and a truck, and he's put bows on them. I think Lexus does one, Mercedes has one where Santa actually drives like a red Mercedes, and it's like, yeah, I want that for Christmas. That really doesn't happen at my house. We don't give cars to each other. Some of you might, and that's, that's cool. God bless you. Uh, you, maybe you, do, you get something less. Maybe you just get a yo-yo or, a, you know, a pocket knife or a puzzle or something or something in between. I don't know. That's not the, you know, the, the point is the way we treat those and we, we kind of take that for granted is do we kind of do that with God's grace sometimes? You know, it just kind of gets rolled in with everything else, and we, we take it for granted. I love the baptisms this morning, and I always love when a parent can baptize a child or a brother or sister, aunt and uncle, or just a good friend, uh, maybe who led somebody to Christ at the office or wherever. I just think that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I want us just to be able to soak in that, you know, to be able to sink down in, in that. Um, and I'm not sure that we do because it gets shuffled and lost in a lot of other things. Let me ask you, do you have like a favorite Christmas carol? I, and I want to say in, in my own defense, I like Christmas music. I'm 
I really don't like Christmas music. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I like Christmas music, but like I listen to the Christian music station a lot, and around Christmas they just play Christmas music. And so I go back to the blues station, and then I get off track spiritually. I mean, it's just this whole thing. No, I'm kidding. I'm sort of kidding. But I like, I like Christmas music. But do you have, like, a favorite? Do you have one that gets stuck in your head? I mean, most of us probably have some. Well, there are a lot, a lot of good ones. There's, there's a good chance that there's a song we sang this morning that may be one of your favorites. It was written by Charles Wesley, and it's, um, it's entitled, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I built a whole series around that idea. I think it was last year I just entitled the series Hark. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of cool. In fact, uh, this song is number five on Classic FM's all-time greatest, best, you know, Christmas classic songs. Uh, so it's pretty popular. It's a pretty popular song. Wesley's Carol, of course, uh, if you didn't know this, um, people in that day, he published his book of songs and he wrote thousands of hymns, really. You know, I don't know how he, you know, he was just a real creative guy. Um, but in 1739, he published this book, and this song uh, was in it, Hark the Herald Angels uh, Sing. And it's based on uh, these words that are either said or sung uh, by a choir of angels. Remember that? They startled the shepherds. Uh, they're in this field outside of Bethlehem. One angel has a solo part. It's kind of like the Naira angel, and then there was the, um, then there's the Dan angels, you know, and, and then this comes this course, and in verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest, heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. This announcement is known as the Gloria, and, and, and it has been the foundation for many popular carols. And, and you'll kind of feel that as we go through the Christmas season and we sing these songs. You'll think, oh, there it is again, the Gloria, the Gloria. Uh, now, as I mentioned, these folks, really, when they wrote music, they, were, they went a little deeper theologically. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to get into, you know, the 1700s were the best time spiritually or there was more insight 1800s, a lot of wacky things happened, a lot of good things happened, but a lot of uh, what we would think of as cults or off splits and branding came about in, in, in that period of time, uh, but, but a lot of beautiful things were written too. But in 1739, this, this book, Hymns and Sacred Poems, contained this famous song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. However, that wasn't the original title. That wasn't the original song. In Charles Wesley's original version, and Charles Wesley was John Wesley's younger brother. And John was kind of the upfront guy. He was the front man. You know, he could preach, and he was a good organizer, and he was kind of like that. And Charles wrote all the music, and he sung, and, you know, and, and did this. And they, they actually founded the Methodist movement in the, in the 18th century. Uh, so, so they were they were powerful guys. Their personalities. Can you imagine their mama? You know, she's like, yeah, those are both my both my sons are in the ministry, and they actually made up their own denomination. I mean, you know, they uh, these guys are just really influential in the world. But his original song uh, begins with this. It says, "Hark, how the welkin rings." So I read that and I thought, wow, that's beautiful. What's a welkin? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like something from Star Wars, too. Oh, then the Welkins attacked. And, you know, but it's, not, it's an old English word, 
that refers to the sky or literally this vault above us that contains all the stars and the planets and the heavens and all of that. It's that, that canopy uh, that's over us. So he wrote this, Hark how the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. That was original lyrics to the song. It's a little different from the version that we sing. So what actually happened was that they had a friend, somebody whose name you'll recognize. Uh, his name was George Whitfield. He was a popular evangelist. When well, he took this song, he took Charles Wesley's original work, and he changed the line to read like this. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wesley was not amused. In fact, it made him mad. It's a little drama, you know, um, among Christian leaders here. Uh, not only because it was done without permission, but because it made the him, to, you know, in his thought, it was a little less biblically powerful. Wesley was very, you know, he was very purposeful. And he noted that the angels, and first of all, he was like, well, the angels in verse 13, they don't sing, they say the words. And so you should take that verb out. I mean, these guys were really kind of, kind of picking at this, but that's, that's what he felt. And he said, and the glory given to the angels in verse 14, he said, glory to in the highest heaven. He said, yes, it is a newborn king. It is God in the flesh as a sign, but it's to the whole cosmos. He said, this is a bigger event. It's both heaven and earth. And then we give glory to God at Jesus' birth. And he felt like that shrunk it a little bit by changing that lyrics. And he would talk about it. And he would say, don't listen to that verse and don't sing that, you know. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had somebody take a song by one of your popular artists and maybe they change it up or they sing it differently. And you think, oh, I like the way, you know, somebody else did it better. But, and that was kind of this little thing going on between them because Wesley felt like this is the thrust of the biblical narrative. This was a big deal. So for him and probably for Luke as well, the birth of Jesus was a sign of heaven and earth coming together. Okay, I want you to just kind of try to wrap your imagination around that. Because what's happening is that divinity and humanity meet. You know, God is bringing peace and reconciliation between himself and human beings. And he's doing it in this incredible way that... You know, it was prophesied about and it was promised and all of this and, and everybody was expecting it. But they didn't know or even think that it was going to happen like this. It was God's rescue plan for the world. A story that began all the way back in Genesis when God began to unfold this. And he revealed, I have a plan. And I have a plan and I'm going to bless a broken world. In fact, I'm going to create nations. And he talked to this other shepherd named Abraham. And he said, I'm going to do this. And now that event that stretches all the way back in time uh, to, to that moment and, and that first little prediction has become a reality. It's really happening now. So Luke explains that when Jesus was born, the world system was in a different place. You're probably familiar with this because it's, it's like one of the very first phrases, you know, in Luke 2, um, where he says, at that time, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, 
demanded that a census be taken all throughout the Roman Empire or all throughout the world. They considered themselves the world uh, and everything else was just suburbs. So he began uh, to explain it because he wanted us to get the big picture. And Luke is brilliant at this. He's a, he, was a, he was a great historian. He included a lot of detail and he observed facts that to him, he felt like, well, this is important. You need to know this for you to understand this. So he lays it out really well, probably uh, in the best way in that sense. Uh, remember, each of these writers sees from his own personality and different view, but you bring it all together, you have this beautiful, powerful, full picture you know, of, the, of the birth of Jesus. So Luke explains that Caesar Augustus was the emperor. Now, Caesar Augustus was a guy named Gaius Octavius. He was the grand nephew of the one and only Julius Caesar. Okay, and so he had kind of inherited this title, uh, the way that things like that happened. He was also, his brother-in-law, at least ex-brother-in-law, was a guy named Anthony. Do you remember Anthony from your history? Anthony falls in love with a foreign woman from Egypt. In fact, she's the queen of Egypt. Her name's Cleopatra. So they have this thing going. So he leaves Rome. He kind of, uh, you know, bails on his own country. And he's in, he's in love with her and all of this drama. You never knew that all this is really going on in the world. You know, sometimes today you look around and you think, you couldn't write this. You know, you think of all the different events that are happening, whether it's in a worldwide, you know, idea or whether it's politically or just in our nation. And you think... Wow, listen, folks, this is not new. I mean, this was a lot of drama happening in the first century back then. Well, Gaius Octavius goes to war against Anthony and defeats him pretty easily because he is Rome, um, you know, and he's got all this, this tremendous military power. So he defeats Anthony. Anthony and Cleopatra later would commit suicide. That's a whole other story. So now he is the emperor. Now, all of that happened... 37 years before Joseph and Mary are making their way uh, to have the census taken. Now, this census was actually a system of censuses. Is that right? Uh, 30, it was 37 years that he had incorporated this, and he had been, been doing this. Now, he was not a nice guy. Octavius could be pretty... Uh, Cruel. He, he was, he was uh, a ruthless kind of guy. But for the most part, he just left the Jews alone. They didn't bother him. He let them kind of operate their own system as long as they stayed within the guidelines and as long as they, guess what, paid taxes. <laughs> so that's what these senses were all about because Octavius loved to build things. He loved, you know, and, and to this day we see that he was like this uh, amazing engineer. I mean, you know, he loved to build buildings to himself. So that's the scene. That's what's happening um, when we open up this story. Caesar Augustus uh, considered himself to be a son of God and called himself that. He called himself the Prince of Peace. He had coins minted that proclaimed those titles to the world. We, we still have those. But his, his divinity, you know, all of this was self-proclaimed. He made this up, you know, about himself, and nobody's going to argue with him. His divinity, his godlikeness um, was all created. And his idea of peace 
it was real easy to keep peace when you had all the armies. You know, when you were the most... So peace, it said, oh, the peace of Rome, the peace of Rome. But it was kept. You know, the peace was maintained at the point of a sword. So there was this peace, uh, and it was, you know, for him, it's simply a matter of eliminating all of Rome's enemies. Hey, we're at peace. Not exactly the kind of peace that God had in mind. But that was the way of every emperor. And you think back, every, every leader, every, it was always established that way. And so when a new emperor came to the throne, it was heralded. It was made a big deal by messengers all over the Roman Empire. And you know what they would say? They would announce, good news. Good news. The Prince of Peace has come. The Son of God is here. Good news. Gospel. Gospel. So we, we didn't invent that. That was already being said. But again, it was, this, it was a different kind of peace. For Israel... For those who were looking for God, the only good news would come when God's true king, Messiah, would pave the way back to the Lord and away from this endless string of tyrants and these bullies who constantly just were ruling the scene one after the other. So here we are. At this moment in history, at this precise time and place, when an angel announces to shepherds of all people that this ancient plan was fulfilled. In verse 10, the angel says, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. It had a difference. God's promised return was finally happening, but in a way that nobody expected. God was not returning as some conquering military hero or some popular political figure. Uh, and the idea was that they would destroy all of Israel's enemies. And every time somebody was oppressed, every time they were made to live, you know, in, in this almost slave-like condition to this, this other nation who had dominated them, you could almost hear them mutter under their breath, you know, one day you'll get yours. One day when Messiah comes, man, I'm so going to get revenge on you. That was their whole thinking. It was just a different way. And it didn't happen like that. No, actually, the sign that was given to these shepherds was a little baby. Can you think of a more helpless, vulnerable creature in all of the world, in all of nature, than a human baby? No teeth, no claws, no fur, nothing. Just a baby. And he's born in this most humble place, this barn, this stable, this cave, in a little nowhere backwater town called Bethlehem. Not at all what you would think. And yet, this is why the whole welkin was ringing. Heaven and earth are coming together as God had intended from the very beginning. This was not plan B or plan C. This was what God was bringing about the entire time. He's coming to dwell with his people and to redeem and to save them. 
this long-awaited Messiah who would be the true king was the Lord himself. He's wrapped in these swaddling clothes. He's a tiny baby, but he's fully human. He's fully divine. This is a piece that's not just being offered to the Jews. Because, to be honest, they kind of thought it was all about them. When they thought of the world, they just looked in the mirror and saw themselves. God said, no, it's going to be for all of humanity. It's for everybody. God's grace is going to break through in such a fresh and beautiful and powerful, loving way that it's offered to everyone. Not just the Jewish nation, not just Israel, but broken humanity will be restored because God came among his people to save us from sin, to renew creation, to restore this peace of God. And that's what I felt that first Christmas after I came to the Lord, after I was walking with Jesus, I remember that first Christmas, just this, this peace, this joy and this purity and this, I, I don't even know how to describe it. But life with Jesus was, was different. God's rescue mission was becoming reality that night in this little manger, almost invisible to the world in a place called Bethlehem. And the carol puts it nicely. It says, God and sinners reconciled. Those lyrics echo the words of the Apostle Paul, who saw the arrival of Jesus, his birth and his death and his resurrection by the means, here it is, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he said God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He would go on to say that he's going to give us the ministry of reconciliation. And how can you reconcile people to God if you don't talk about it? And if you don't say that? Paul said, this is the real good news. And it can be shared with more people than just amongst ourselves. This ministry of reconciliation. Folks, this is our mission. And it's proclaiming God's peace and his grace. And this new creation that's made possible through Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I know I've probably quoted this verse several times throughout this past year. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I can't get over that. That we would be made the righteousness of God. Someone was recently saying, yeah, you know, we're talking about sin and trouble and struggles with different things. And they said, yeah, but when you die, you know, and you become holy and then everything changes. Folks, you don't become, the Bible never says that. I actually started looking at what happens when we die. And the only thing I can find, I found about six or eight different biblical references in the New Testament. You get a new body. You get a brand new body. That's kind of the idea. That's, that's the transition. You are made holy when you're reconciled to God through Christ. I know you don't feel like it sometimes. Or sometimes you think, man, I'm really not the righteousness of God. But you are. You are. His holiness in you. And Paul said, there's the good news. And then the writer of the song says this, Joyful all ye nations rise. 
join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Here in Wesley's carol, based on the message of these angels, it's the essence of the gospel. He says, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. It's done. How does that happen? It happens through faith. It happens that through Jesus, God's rescue plan for the world includes you. We saw these two boys baptized this morning because of something that's happened in their lives. They've been reconciled with God through Christ. They took that step. So here's the takeaway. God has moved in our direction. He stepped toward us in Jesus. Now, will you step toward him? Him being born in that manger didn't automatically, you know, just like brush or wash salvation over all humanity. He said, I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not going to make you do this. You're not robots. You're people. You're humans. Will you choose to be reconciled? I want you to think about everything that God has done. And I don't say this so that you'll have feelings of guilt or shame or be motivated by any sense of obligation. But I just want you to think. Look at everything God has done to get you to be able to know him personally. He went to great lengths. And if the son would come all this way and just enter into our mess and the chaos of not just the world, but my heart, the mess of my heart, to become a real person... (laughs) Don't you think that the Holy Spirit will do anything in his power to make Jesus real to you in your heart? Christmas is an invitation to know Jesus personally. I don't know if you do. I don't know if you've given it a lot of thought. But I know this door is open. And I know this opportunity is not just for me or for those who already celebrate Christmas. It's for you. It's for you too. You can have a brand new Christmas because you have a brand new life, a brand new heart. You make this exchange for all that other stuff. Christmas is an invitation where God is saying, draw near to me. You don't need more religion. You don't need all of that. I don't want to be a concept. (laughs) I want to be a savior and a friend. If you know him in that kind of relationship, then will you use Christmas as an opportunity to share the good news? 
with all the world around us. There's a lot of things that movies and songs get right and not so right. They get wrong. But here's one that maybe they got right. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing for all to hear. Will you do that? Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's celebrate Jesus.